Welcome to Africans Heal. We're here to foster a healthy African diaspora community and promote mental health awareness through storytelling and celebrating all cultures. We're here to heal together. Tupone Pamoja. Hi everyone, my name is Christine. Today our guest is Amanda Blaney. Amanda Blaney is the founder of Doing Death, an organization that fosters authentic conversations about death and dying. She has also authored the book, Do Death for a Life Better Lived, which I highly recommend, in which she seeks to transform how we live our lives through helping us build better relationships with death. She's doing so in her book by inviting us to accept death as a natural part of life by encouraging us to live life more consciously and to focus on what really matters. Amanda also works in hospice care in the United Kingdom, which she'll talk about more in our episode today. So welcome, Amanda Blaney. Thank you. That's yeah. a very nice introduction. <laughs> I sound so professional. <laughs> you are, you are. <laughs> I wanted us to begin by talking about a quote in your book, which I kind of laughed at when I read it. It was funny, but at the same time, I was like, wow, this is real. And it says, death has a 100% success rate. We can't escape its inevitability, nor can we deny its existence. Yet, if we're willing to have a relationship with and an acceptance of death, it can make us realize how precious life is. When we have lived a good, meaningful life, it can help us to let go at the end. So I just wanted us to start by talking about it has a 100% success rate. And I going back to your do lecture, which I'll link in the um, notes, I especially like how you rang the bell and you said at the beginning of your lecture to symbolize the presence of death. So could you just talk to us about the presence of death and what you meant in that lecture and death having a 100% success rate? I know we, we know that we will all pass away at some point, but just kind of like elaborate on this quote and you ringing the bell. I think, I mean, I laughed when I wrote it actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I thought, and I, I actually wrote it for my presentation at the D lectures for my talk. And, um, and, and actually people did laugh when I said that. And I think it was kind of an icebreaker, but also to say, you know, this is something we all have in common. None of you in the room are going to get away with this. This is something that's going to happen to everybody. So yes, death does have a hundred percent success rate because everybody here and everyone who listens to this podcast and everyone who is alive will eventually die. And, mm-hmm. um, so I guess it's just bringing that awareness into people's minds that this is going to happen. Right. And also the idea of the bell, um, I guess twofold, it was just bringing everyone into a space of thought and clarity and also to make them be more present in the room. And I think when someone's dying, it does make you more present for the person that's dying, but also the family, you know, you're there in this space with someone dying and it's, it's profound, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very profound and powerful, traumatic and beautiful experience at the same time. And so I was trying to emulate presence in the people that were there, but in a way echoing the sort of presence you have when someone's dying as well. 
Yeah, that was really profound when you did that. It actually got my attention and I've, it took me back to the first death I experienced in my life as a child when my dad's sister died and we had to go to the village or the countryside, you may call it, where my grandma was and they kept the body um, right outside. They had just a little covering and I just remember like all of us just being very aware and alert and nobody was talking and you ringing the bell really just took me back to that exact moment Mm. and so true that the presence of death can be so real. Yeah. And and life affirming, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I think when you're sitting with someone dying, or you're with someone dying, you're thinking about your own life, right? You're not just thinking about their life. You're thinking about yours and what mm-hmm. does it mean, this death, and how does that affect you? Um, yeah. Because the person's dying who is dying. They're going, right? Um, it's us that are left behind. They have to pick mm-hmm. up the pieces. Yes. Uh, once they're gone, they're gone. And it's the loved ones that have to deal with that impact of having mm-hmm. someone die. And, and what does that mean? And so why death, Amanda? What's the purpose behind your organization doing death? What made you want to talk about death? Um, I guess I was volunteering in a hospice. And actually, I mean, I, I had no wish to set up doing death. <laughs> Um, it hadn't sprung to mind. It wasn't a a passion that I'd had. Um, I just was working in the hospice and my my job was an emotional spiritual volunteer. So, and it was a volunteering role. It wasn't a job. It was a role. And I would go in and talk to people dying. And I was in the, um, the, the department, which most people had two weeks to live that no one wanted to volunteer in that department. It's pretty, it's pretty intense. Um, so of course I volunteered and, um, I loved it, you know, because death can be really lonely, particularly mm-hmm. if you're very old. A lot of people that you know have already died. So who's there for you? So just sitting in a room, chatting to someone and exploring how they might be feeling um, is, a, I, you know, I felt very honoured. But I also felt a bit useless as well because I felt like there's only so much talking can do. I can do or they can do and like what could I do to help so that's when I really started to think about what am I capable of doing to help people so I came up with a resource site um maybe I could set up something that people could find books or they could find articles or something about this this information you know about death you know how do we navigate that experience how do we navigate our feelings about it? How do we navigate the experience of it? How do we navigate what happens afterwards? You know, why didn't we talk? Why does no one talk about this stuff? And why is it that people are dying really badly in the hospice? And when I say badly, just in a way that's very, um, we could do it better. Then I thought I'd like to put together a newsletter and I went to a workshop that was being run by a colleague, an old work colleague that I used to know in my advertising days. And he's amazing. He's an entrepreneur and a trailblazer in sort of thoughts and um, work and how we work and our calling in life. And um, I went along to hit one of his workshops about newsletters and he was really fascinated that I was trying to create something to open up this conversation around death. He said, you know, I'd love you to come and do a talk around this subject and what you're doing. I think it's fascinating and I think it's amazing. And suddenly I was like, oh God, I haven't set up a website. <laughs> I haven't got anything. Yeah. So I really had, I had like a sort of six month period between, between then and doing the talk. And I thought, actually, what am I doing? What, what am I going to talk about? 
what is it that I want to do? And um, that was a, a real catalyst for me to work out exactly, you know, it was almost like it was um, calling my bluff. Like, do you really want to do this? What's mm-hmm. it going to be called? And I was actually doing a yoga class and I saw the words doing death. It was weird. It was like in a supernova, mm-hmm. it was like a division of a supernova star. And it just said doing death in it. And I was like, oh, that's the name. And um, so that's how I came up with the website name and the organization name. And it just sort of started from there. I started a podcast called Doing Death. And then I was asked to write the book as part of um, the, the do books. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's kind of just gone from there. And then I started training as an end of life dealer. And for any Anyone that doesn't know what an end of life dealer is, it's someone, it's a bit like a birth dealer. It's it's accompanying someone and being alongside someone who's dying and, you know, facilitating whatever they might need, which could be access to, you know, meditation resources or help with palliative care, just being a sort of guide and advocate for someone who's dying in that process. So and I and I felt that training to be an end of life dealer would be really helpful in the hospice work that I I do. Um, and of course, you know, me being me, I, I, <laughs> I'm now on the committee, uh, end of life dealer UK, and I do lots of talks with them and we're doing something this week actually for dying matters, um, about what is a doula and mm-hmm. advanced care planning, advanced planning for end of life care. So there's just so, you know, there's so much and also the death cafe as well. Um, that's something that I do. And also was start the start of my journey. Um, I went to a death cafe and for the, again, for those who don't know what a death cafe is, a death cafe is a place where you can go. It's an informal setting, usually in a cafe over a cup of tea and something to eat, usually slice a cake and you meet complete strangers. Maybe there's 20 people there and you talk about death, you know, and that can be anything that can be grief, that can be fear of death, that can be anxiety, anything. And it's amazing. So I went to one in North London and actually I remember the day that I was going up on the train into London and I met someone that I'd known years ago and I said, oh, I'm going to something called a death cafe. And they, they looked absolutely horrified. Yeah. It was really weird. And they, they they sort of almost moved away from me. And I thought, well, that's so <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting. They think I'm a nutter. Um anyway, I went and obviously I'm it's not something crazy. It's it's a, it's an amazing life affirming event. And the lady that ran it, Josephine Speyer, she's a death educator and she's been a real mentor to me. And then I met this lady there and she wanted to set up a death cafe in Hertfordshire, which is where I now live. And I was like, yeah, I'll help you. And, um, and then she got ill the night before the death cafe and Mm. I ended up running it myself and it was fine. It was, it went really well. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, people come out and they say, this has been a really enlightening experience. Just talking about actually being given the space to talk about something that we're not really given a space to talk about in society. Mm -hmm. So you run the one in London? Uh, I do help sometimes facilitate it with her, but no, I run my own one in Hertfordshire, just outside London. Um, and I love that, but just with the pandemic, I haven't been able to run it. And I haven't, I was going to do one online, but because I've been homeschooling, I haven't been mm. able to do it. But that's something I'm going to do. I'm going to run one online. And hopefully that'll mean people around the world can come, not just people in Hertfordshire. If someone's thinking of starting a death cafe, is this something they can do also? 
like, do they need to attend some of the classes? Do you have classes or something that you offer to train people so they can lead their own death cafes? Well, if you go on deathcafe.com, Mm-hmm. Um, it was set up by a guy called John Underwood, who, with his mum, who I think she's a psychologist or psychotherapist. And um, I've actually interviewed them. They're on one of my podcasts. I've interviewed mm-hmm. his sister and his mum, and they talk about how they set that up. And the reason why I didn't talk to John is because he died. Um, he set it up in 2011, and then he died, I think it was 2017, um, unexpectedly and shockingly, of uh, undiagnosed, um, it's quite a complicated word, poly- polycystic leukemia, Polycyst- okay. something like that. Anyway, it's on my, it's on my podcast notes. You can read about it, but it's, yeah. And so through that, he sort of created this phenomenon, which, you know, grew worldwide and it's, it's massive. It's a, it's a huge, huge cultural phenomenon. And, um, so yeah, you can go on the website and it shows you what you need to do and the, and you need to register at your death cafe with deathcafe.com and they tell you all the, you know, they give you all the paperwork that you need to run it, but it's pretty straightforward. You just, you know, you start by, um, the night by just going around the table, people introduce themselves and they say why they're there. And that usually prompts a whole night's conversation, just saying why they're there. Mm-hmm. There's not really a structure. There's no structure. Okay. So it's just, it's like a connect group. People just come together to chat yeah. and be, support each other. Exactly. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's not even a support group. It is literally a place to come and talk. Yes. Be heard. You don't come for counseling. It's not bereavement. Mm-hmm. group it is literally just for a space to explore a subject that we don't explore openly in public with anyone oh. yeah and it's kind of seen as a such a a subject that people don't want to talk about and mm-hmm. i and understandably but if we don't talk about it then it's like it is like the elephant in the room isn't it yes yes which i wanted, wanted you to tell us more about the death elephant um but i guess the death elephant is not wanting to talk about it you know we all we all know it's coming Mm -hmm. we we all at some point in our lives will experience someone that we know whether that be a grandparent is usually the first or you know as you were saying an unexpected death of a family member or a friend or a school friend and how do we navigate that and i think the elephant in the room People are scared. You know, why are people scared of talking about it? One of the one of the reasons is that people think if they talk about it, it might somehow draw that to happen to them. You know, they've got mm-hmm. suspicion around it. They don't, you know, they don't want to even comprehend talking about it. Well, what I've noticed actually recently is there's a lot of talk around grief. There's a lot of social media stuff around grief. There's still not a lot around death. And that's no. quite interesting because obviously there's me, there's a few other people that are doing it, but Really, most people are talking about grief because grief is, even the word grief isn't the word death. So talking about grief, even though grief is talking about death, it makes it more palatable for people to enter into this subject. Yeah. Whereas me having the word doing death in my organization name, it's confronting. You know, when I ring up to book appointments, like for the dentist, say for my children, and I give my email address, which has got doing death in it, the reactions are people either hysterical with laughter or they they just sort of look at me in a really funny way. Or, you know, even the name doing death is confronting the people. 
It's yeah. just it's just the word death. People just don't like it, which is why we don't use it. Which is that the whole la- you know there's a whole language um, avoidance. We say lost, passed away. People don't say the word died, and I get it. But we need to start using the word died. So and so died. They didn't get lost. They haven't disappeared. Well, they have, but they've they've died. And yeah. if we can start normalizing, you know, language is really powerful. If we can start normalizing language around death, that's one of the first stages, I think, in normalizing something is how we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Do we use euphemisms to talk about death or do we actually describe it as what it is? You know, mm-hmm. and and describing that to children as what it is, not in a scary way, but just in a way as this is what happens. This is the word, you know, somebody has died. It's very sad. This is what happens when someone dies. Yeah. Body just stops working. You know, it's normalizing very early on with children so that they're like my mom did. So that, that when they experience it, yes, it's still horrendously painful, but at least we're prepared for it because we've been talking about it. And it's like anything, isn't it? If you bottle it all up, it'll come out as in, in, you know, as an anxiety or a fear or, you know, physically. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, that elephant in the room needs to go because <laughs> it's not going to help us if we avoid it. No, it's not. We, we need to be able to deal with something that's, that's ever present in our life. I mean, you know, we've just gone through COVID. Mm-hmm. How can we avoid talking about death when COVID's just happened or, and is happening still? I mean, look at India. Yes. It's just, you know, unbelievable. And it's, it's there. It's right in our faces at the moment. We can't, you know, we can't, we can't ignore that elephant anymore mm-hmm. because we've been dealing with it for, you know, the last year. And the reason why we haven't gone out is because of death. Yeah. The reason why we haven't seen our friends is because of death. The reason why we can't go to work is because of death. I mean, this is why we are have been in lockdown is because of death. That is true. Um, We're getting vaccinated because of because death. Of death. Our yeah. whole life at the moment is governed by death. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's so interesting that um, everything that we're doing now is about death, like literally everything is governed by that, by this subject, which is pretty mental. When you you know, when you think about it, it's like, well, you know, it's powerful. That takes me back to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is your book and how it's split into five sections. So there's the before, the during, after a new way and the conscious living. And I personally found it really hard to read the before because like you said, it made me question my own mortality. It made me think of my own parents. It made me think of my siblings, my family members and my my own death and their deaths. How would I even bring this conversation up to my dad or my, my mom, you know? And why do you think we struggle so much with the before aspect, especially when we're not sick or unwell and thinking that, oh, if I start planning my death or like putting things aside, like I'm bringing myself bad luck, especially in the African a lot of African cultures, it's like if you're talking about death before, you're like calling it upon yourself, which you kind of talked about in your lecture. Why do we struggle so much with the before? Well, I think as humans, we like to procrastinate, don't we? Um, as one of the things. And I think, you know, I think there's a there's a statistic in the UK. Uh, I think it's 60% of people haven't done their wills. Mm-hmm. And I think the sort of preparation around death, um, which is why I did a before chapter, was part of starting that conversation around death is actually just getting your paperwork in order, getting your will sorted out, you know, thinking about 
care planning, who's your power of attorney, um, thinking about the stuff that you own, who might you want to have that stuff when you go, thinking about what you're buying so that you're not accumulating loads of clutter. I mean, we organize to death when we're having a baby. Mm-hmm. We think about everything. When we're getting married, we think about everything. We are organized. You know, you wouldn't we wouldn't turn up to a wedding without having prepared it first, you know. So death is another big event that we all have. One of the things is it's something that happens in our lives and we don't prepare for it because we don't talk about it. So we procrastinate and we procrastinate about talking about it. So we procrastinate about doing all the things that we need to do. And when people die, they leave awful messes. It's mm-hmm. it, it a nightmare. It creates complete and utter it destroys, it can destroy families because people are fighting over money, possessions. They don't know what that person might have wanted for their funeral. And that creates emotional struggles with between siblings. I mean, it's horrendous. Yes. So the way I look at it is if you love your family and friends, why leave it in a complete and utter mess? Why would you why would you do that to your family? Like surely if you love them, then this is the kindest thing you can do for them is just to prepare what you want in the event of your death and and what you want to happen to all your stuff when you die and what what would happen to your children if you're a parent. In fact, that was the reason why I started my doing my will before I even did doing death. As I read somewhere that if you don't have a will and you and you both die, the father and the mother, your children go into care until mm-hmm. it's decided what happens to them. And that for me was the catalyst for me to do my will. I, it wasn't so much about the money. It was like, God, what's going to happen to my children? Who will look mm-hmm. after them? Who will decide how the money, our money, our assets, our house will be, you know, who decides who gets that money? So when I was structuring my book, I sort of, I mean, I'm a really methodical person. So I wanted something that was very methodical or that looked very methodical so that you Mm -hmm. could dip in and go, right, if I just want to read this book for getting stuff organized, I can just read the before bit. And then I can come back to the after bit when someone I know has died, or maybe I just want to read the during bit when someone's dying. What does that look like? What does it mean to before to, to think about death and to be prepared for death? And how can I protect myself and protect my family? You know, because we spend most of our time fighting to live, you know, in the, with our hospitals. Hospitals are there to keep us alive. We have anti-aging creams to make us look younger so that we, we're not looking old. You know, again, another denial of ageism. You know, there's, there's, there's so many things wrapped up in this idea that you know, we're going to live forever and we're not going to live forever. So once we can, you know, realize that and come to terms with that, that's all right. Mm -hmm. It's okay. That goes on to transform how we actually live every day, knowing that we're not going to be here forever. Exactly. And so this is the underlying theme in my book that thinking about death is really understanding that the time that we have here is so precious. It's so precious that how are we using that time? How are we living? Are we living well? Are we living with passion? You know, are we living, doing the things that we want to do? Like what, you know, what are our jobs? Mm -hmm. Do we want to be in that job? Get out of it then if you don't want to be in it. You know, it's thinking all the time, you know, not in a, in a stressful way, just being mindful that, you know, this isn't forever. And in fact, also, I think, I mean, I was just thinking about it now as I was writing my newsletter this morning mm-hmm. and I was thinking about this 
space that we've been in, in COVID, in lockdown. And it's very much like the space that you're in when you're dying. It's a sort of, it's like a transformative space because you're moving on to another, you know, when you're dying, you're transitioning to what we don't know, but you're transitioning your body out of your body. You know, either you, you know, some believe you're not here anymore. Some believe you live on, whatever you believe. We don't really know until we die. But mm-hmm. I think in a way, being in lockdown has been in this sort of very transformative, uncertain space, very much like when someone is dying, they're in a very similar space. So in a way, I feel like we've all been in this sort of cocoon of uncertainty, but also of exploration. And I think people who are dying are definitely going through that. I think it's really hard to understand what that is. Mm-hmm. And of course, people who work with people who are dying see patterns in how people die and they all die, you know, in a, in a similar way. And in fact, when I was in the hospice, most of the deaths that I saw were very similar. Um people dying peacefully. And that that was really reassuring for me that to know that there is access to care, palliative care. Mm-hmm. And don't don't be scared of that because actually palliative care, things like palliative care, accessing the right help can actually help extend your life at the end. If you're living with a life-limiting illness or a terminal illness, mm-hmm. accessing things like palliative care can help pain and it can just help your day-to-day living. And how about some taboos that are behind palliative care? Like people thinking, oh, if I go into hospice, they're just going to give me too much morphine and then I'm going to pass away sooner. How about some stereotypes like those? Well, I think the idea of going to hospice means that it's the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but what hospice means, I think, just from being in hospice is they offer a very, very specialized care, which isn't available in hospitals unless there's a palliative care team in a hospital that can work closely. So, you know, hospices, that's all they do is work with people that, you know, sometimes they work with people who've got a, 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 you know, people think of a terminal diagnosis as not having very long to live. But if you're thinking of a life limiting illness, obviously that's the same thing as a terminal, can be the same thing as a terminal illness. You don't know how long you have. It could be five years, it could be 10 years, but accessing the help from a hospice could be really useful. And that can extend that time that you have and it can help offer you a better quality of life, which could be pain medication. It could be the help of an occupational therapist, which is someone that can come to your home and just help make it a bit more manageable for you, which might be railings if you're struggling physically, if you're a bit older and you can't Mm -hmm. get off the toilet, for instance. They might put rails up for you to be able to to manage yourself better. Mm -hmm. So it's help like that, which Mm -hmm. you might not be able to find anywhere else. So it's about accessing those resources. And I think that's why I do is quite useful because a good doula is someone who's aware of the resources in your area and so you would go to them and obviously you have to pay them but to say look you know what's what's there for me what's available for my mum how can mm-hmm. I get help what do I what are the things I need to be thinking of you know it's it's just knowing where to go and knowing where to get that help and we don't know that so I think the the whole thing about hospices um yeah I mean obviously it's up to you the hospices won't give you or a person more pain medication unless you want it and unless that person's in a I guess if they're unconscious I guess they would talk to them beforehand and if they said if you seem uncomfortable are you happy with us administrating um morphine it's a two-way conversation and I think if you're one of the people that's caring for someone that's dying you know you have to be an advocate for them as well I think it's really important to say well if mum was 
unconscious, for instance, but still alive. You as their their loved one, knowing what they would have wanted. And so that comes back to being organized, having Mm -hmm. those conversations with family members before they face something like a life-limiting illness or a sudden event that happens to them, which has put them in this situation. And if they can't express what their wishes are, that each and every person in their family knows what those are. And it's written down somewhere in a document. And there are places in my book that I recommend that you can go and make a advanced plan. So you've got something which is called like a living will. For instance, um, I'm allergic. My mom is allergic to plasters. So I know if she goes into hospital, not to give her plasters because she breaks down in a rash. So it's just things like that. That How would a hospital know that? Um, do you want to be resuscitated? That If you didn't want to be, you'd need to do a do not resuscitate form. Who would you like to have control of your estate if you were not able to express your wishes? So these are the things that we need to think about now, really. And yeah, it's a bit boring, but it's a necessity. But once it's done, it's done and you don't have to think about it. But, you know, it's, I guess it's like putting money away for your pension. Mm-hmm. I guess if you look at it like that, you're just preparing for the eventuality of, you know, pensions for when you get older, a living will and a will. And, you know, what medical care would you want? Are you somebody who feels the cold? Is it important to have soft blankets? And, you know, then there's also the point at which you might be dying. What would be important to you? Is it important to die at home above all else? Is that the one thing that you would want? And if you don't care about dying at home, if you're okay about dying in hospital, what would that mean? You know, what would you want to have um, some music perhaps? Would you like Mm -hmm. to have family members in the room with you? You know, what would be important to you when you're dying? But how do you tell anyone that if you don't have those conversations? So, And Mm -hmm. and those are the things that are really important to to the people around you, to your family and friends. Um, So I I think it's really about thinking about it in a way that's logical and and for me and I always come back to this it's how can I do this so that I can be kinder to them so they don't have to deal with it all for me I mean I know what I want but how does anyone else know what I want yeah especially when we become unconscious and we can speak for ourselves it makes it really hard for the living to figure that out so the before is so important especially for for both the living and the dying and it makes it more manageable to let go at the end and you do talk about in the during how um, for people who once they were ready to die and the living gave them permission to die then the person would eventually pass away in that Mm. sense and I thought that was so intriguing um, how you you brought that up because I thought these are just taboos that we just talk about or just things that we say they're not really real like people just say them to say them to comfort themselves but it is true that if we are prepared if we had if we've done the before and put in our work that it helps us have a more peaceful death knowing that okay this is taken care of my kids are taken care of you know and it helps us to let go at the end but on a bigger level Mm -hmm. I think we also have to accept and be aware of that there are endings in our life all the time. Mm -hmm. We're grieving all the time and we don't know it or we're not aware of it, why we feel so weird about things. Like, for instance, I grieved when my children went to school. I grieved when they went on to secondary school. Um, You know, you grieve the loss of a relationship when it's ended. And those things can be so painful. You know, there's the empty nest syndrome when children leave home and they go to college. That's another form of grieving. So we have endings all the time, right 
now during COVID, we've had the end of life as we know it. That's a pretty big uh, ending. And it's this idea that life is impermanent. You know, the Buddhist view that life is impermanent. It's not, it's ever changing and ever changing means endings. And I think it's just having an awareness of those endings that being aware of that and accepting that's part of life is also part of letting go as well. And I think, you know, the better life that you've lived, maybe for some people that would be hard to let go, but for others, maybe they'd feel satisfied that they'd lived really well and were ready to go. I mean, I've just read an amazing book um, by Irvin Yalom, I think his surname is, and it's what matters most in death and life. And his wife, Marilyn's dying, and they both co-write the book together. And um, she's 87 when she's dying. And she says, you know, I'm satisfied to go now because... I've lived, you know, I've I've lived fully. I've lived the life that I've wanted to leave. So she was really ready to go. And I thought that was just such a good example of someone who had lived well. But also when she, she was dying of cancer, when she knew that it was terminal, she started arranging to see friends so she could say goodbye to them. You know, she wasn't leaving loose ends. She started getting rid of her books, you know, just starting to do things to get organized. And mm-hmm. all of that is a process of letting go. You know, I, I was thinking, that I think God I must stop buying books because what's going to happen to them (laughs) I die you know this is the way that I think it might be a bit um, unusual but I I do I think well I need to maybe then think about which books are really good and I'd want my children to read and if then if if they're no good just give them to charity Mm -hmm. just don't accumulate stuff that you're only going to have to get rid of at some point yeah the minimalists talk about this and they just did a new documentary it's these two guys and they do the minimalist podcast and they've written a book on minimalism and one of them he talks about his mom's death his mom died from cancer stage four lung cancer if i remember correctly and she had moved to florida so he had to figure out what his mom would have kept and what she would have thrown away and he said that it was such a long process and it was for him to figure out, did my mom really want to keep this? And what do I do with it? He said it was a lot of work going through that, trying to process everything and throw things away and give some away. And yeah, I didn't, we don't really think of that, that when we die, someone has to come into our place and clean up all our things. Mm. But if we did, we might live differently. We might live more minimally, might live more cleanly. I think because I've written about it and I'm thinking about it, I do tend to do big clear outs. It traumatizes Mm. my husband because I'm like eh, just get rid of it chuck it away give it to charity you know we give a lot away on our community Facebook page which is brilliant um you know locally you can just say who wants this chest of drawers we don't want anymore and someone will come and pick it up you know the next day and it's it's a really nice way of um well cleansing your house but also things being reused and it feels like it's giving back to the community mm-hmm. rather than taking it to a rubbish dump it's yeah it's a bit more hassle advertising it somewhere and either giving it away for free or selling it for half of what you bought it for but it just means it's going and it's going to be useful to someone else and I like that idea as well that it's not just living cleaner it's actually giving I think COVID has been really hard but I also think that it presents a new way forward as well in terms of community how we connect to people and how important that is and not realizing how important that was until it was all taken away and we had to be really clever and find ways of connecting like this 
that we could see people. And I like that you touched on COVID because a lot of people who are dying critically from COVID are dying on ventilators. So that would be really challenging if your family member um, dies that way and you have to figure out what to do. So I think it's helping us to be more conscious of how we're living and having a living will. You talked about conscious living as well, but I wanted us to talk about the five common regrets, which you mentioned in your do lecture. I really connected with those. And I felt like your lecture in general would be a good icebreaker for most of us who may not know how to bring up this topic to aging parents. And I like your humor in it. So would you just talk about the five common regrets that you also mentioned in your lecture? Well, it was interesting because those were the things I think out of the talk that people really, it really resonated with them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually the response to my talk was just incredible you know loads of people crying mm-hmm. hugging me um yeah it was just it was pretty mad actually and it, it really set a tone for the whole it's a, like a weekend event but yeah I mean I they're not my words they're they're words from a lady called Bronnie Ware who's a who who's a palliative care nurse in Australia and these are the things that she noticed came up regularly for people when they were dying and so she documented them because she thought it was really important and um I think they've been hugely received worldwide but I've been thinking about what that means and I thought about it when I was writing my book as well the first one I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life others expected of me I think that's very much about and it actually there was another speaker at the same time called El Luna she wrote this amazing piece on medium called should versus must and it was about what you should do what you're told that you should do rather than what you feel you must do and I think that's that sort of emulates what this means it's like a lot of people do things that people think either they feel that other people think they should do rather than what they really want to do mum would like me to go to university and become a doctor yeah but really I'd like to be a musician (laughs) (laughs) no it's that and then and then at the end of life going oh god that was I didn't really enjoy that job at all Mm -hmm. I wish I did this you know well it's just thinking you know I wish I had the courage to be the person that I wanted to be rather than what I thought was expected of me so I think that's really powerful um number two I wish I hadn't worked so hard really that's for me that's about particularly men actually at the end of life what she discovered was that it was very prominent in men this regret was that they'd worked hard they hadn't seen their family and their children and you know at the end of life you're not going to think about all about the job that you well, you might have thought about the job if that's all you did, but you you think about the people that you're leaving behind. You don't care about the job you're leaving behind. You care about the people that you're leaving behind. So what does that tell you? That relationships are more powerful, more important mm-hmm. than time spent in a job. I mean, obviously we have to work, but it's like, how do we make that time with our children and our families count? Because mm-hmm. as a mother myself, it, you know, now that my children are sort of 11, 12, 14, I keep thinking, God, like, you know, in a few years time, they're going to be off at uni. And then that's mm-hmm. done that small children part is over and you know so I think it's just thinking about how we're working and actually again going back to COVID this is redefining how we're working people have spent time at home men have spent time at home women and families have spent time together women also been working from home um but you know if you're a mother you have the juggle of the work if you're a working mom and what does that mean so I think again COVID has, has made us really look at how we work and whether we can work more flexibly 
flexibly, which might offer more time with our families because we've been experiencing that. And some people have loved it. Some people have hated it. (laughs) Some people have got divorced. And then number three, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. Well, who are we? You know, who, who are you? Does anyone know who we are? Do we know who we are? How do we express who we are to other people? How do we express that to our loved ones? You know, how can we be our authentic selves without obviously without being offensive, but how can we be that authentic person so that people really know who we are? You know, mm. we don't need to live a lie. Who are, you know, who are we? Um, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Yeah. I, in fact, yeah. In the hospice, when I was um, in that department, loads of people said to me, oh God, I if only I'd kept in contact with so-and-so, I would really have liked to have seen them now and just say goodbye or we lost touch and I wish I'd made the effort. I don't know where they are now. Um, my mom does it. She says, you know, I can't get hold of so-and-so. They might have died. I'd never know. You know, it's mm. sad. If those people mean something to you, keep in touch with them. Tell them how you feel. Mm-hmm. And when you see them, tell them how important they are in your lives because that that's so enriching. That breeds stronger connections. You know, those mm-hmm. connections are really powerful. Those connections can stay with you your whole life. And, you know, I think that shows a really a, a life well lived if you have people around you that love you. I wish I'd let myself be happier. Yeah, well, I have that conversation with my husband all the time because uh, he always says, oh, you know, I just, I wish I had more joy in my life. And it's like, well, what makes you happy? You know, go and play as a musician, go and play your guitar if that makes you happy. Go and do some jamming in, in, your, in your shed. <laughs> 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 and for me, what makes me happy? I like reading, you know, I love reading. So I'd love to have just a bit more time. You know, what would make me happier? Well, doing, doing death makes me really happy so that's I feel like I'm doing my calling with that so I feel really pleased with myself and that makes me really happy helping people to live better and die and empower people to die better that that makes me happy (laughs) so I guess it's just thinking what what gives you joy don't deny yourself that joy you know life's short we're you know why can't we all have a bit more fun it's not all doom and gloom is it no it's not (laughs) (laughs) and then I think we've we're really living right I think it's just good to keep all those things in mind but I think it's yeah it's really the understanding of death the facing death and being aware that it's always prevalent you know and particularly in the last year we've all been faced with our own mortality and and everyone that we love we we owe it to ourselves and our family and our loved ones to think about these things so that we can live a really special life and then at the end although hard to let it go knowing that we've lived the best that we can in the way that we wanted to with kindness and compassion and with joy i think that's all we can ask for really and with meaning what gives my life meaning what gets me excited every morning what fills me with joy what gives my life purpose those questions I think are really important thanks Amanda I will definitely re-listen to this and take more notes <laughs> from all that you've shared I can see you're really listening <laughs> you're like, oh my god she's told me so much <laughs> but it's a big you know but that's why that's why I loved um I mean, God, you know, my dad died last year and it was really hard the year before, actually. Um, And I did, you know, and this is something that I talk about. But when someone that you love dies, it's really bloody hard. I mean, we haven't even talked about grief, but that's another thing altogether. But, you know, life is also about embracing the tough, painful things that happen to us and Mm -hmm. 
there can be growth from those things if we mm-hmm. if we allow ourselves to feel that pain i think there can be growth from that how did your dad die if you don't mind me asking um well he was 90 years old he went out for lunch and he had he, he died of a heart attack over lunch um which is probably just the way he would have wanted to die in style you know right to the end quickly and no fuss so that would have suited him nicely I think and he lived a very vibrant colorful life with many wives many children (laughs) (laughs) and uh, yeah I think he I think he loved his life so yeah you know he lived to a ripe old age so although it was really sad there was something comforting in the fact that I knew he always lived how he wanted to live he wasn't always the best dad but you know and I'm sure he regret would have regretted that on, on some form not being as kind and as nice as he could have been but I definitely he he definitely lived how he wanted to live you know everyone might not have approved of that but um we had a very strange relationship but I was obviously devastated and I was doing talks my book came out um two days after he died so it was like I was going doing talks about my book talking about death and actually grieving at the same time which was hard um Mm -hmm. but also gave the book more gravitas for me talking about it was it still shocking even though I'm assuming that your dad had written a will and you guys had had discussions on death did it still come as a shock to you yeah yeah. yeah. So it's my dad, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, I think death is always a shock, mm-hmm. but it can also be a relief. You know, if someone's been very ill for a long time and they've been in a lot of discomfort or in pain, I don't think people would admit it, but I think a lot of people feel relieved because they know that person's been released mm-hmm. from that discomfort and pain. You don't want to see someone you love like that. Yeah. And once they, die there is a sense of release so i think death is shocking but death can also offer a relief to the person that's died and also the person that's watching them die well amanda thank you so much i hope to get you back in future to talk about grief thank you for taking your time to do this like this will definitely help a lot of us and for those listening where can they find your information um just go to doingdeath.com I'll share your lecture. I was like, how is she not on TED Talks? But- <laughs> <laughs> I'm finding, I feel like there's one coming up at some point, but I don't know. I've heard, I've, I've got some friends who have done some TED Talks and it's, I mean, I know I would be able to do it, but I just, right now it's not my priority, but yeah, maybe one day I'd love yeah, to do a TED Talk. I think you'd be phenomenal. And this is so much needed, but I will definitely be sharing your do lecture and going back to your book to help me as well with the before and this time, hopefully without crying so I can actually (laughs) do what I need to do. But then I guess when you were reading it, it was it was bringing up a lot of the stuff that you'd probably buried somewhere d- deep down inside you. And maybe it was a good thing. I think well, I know it's a good thing to, yeah. to explore that part of you. And, you know, crying is a release as well. So it's it's releasing something you didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. That's he was there but didn't want to look at it that's true thanks Amanda all right thank you so much it's been really lovely talking to you and I feel like I've been prattling on about everything I guess that's the whole point of this but yeah it was really nice thank you of course of course and would have to get you back <laughs> oh, thank you so much 
thank you so much for listening thank you for your support please be sure to leave us a review that will be very beneficial it will help put this podcast on the map so others can find it be sure to check us out on instagram at africans heal check out our website at africansheal.com share this episode with a friend and be sure to tune in next week you do not want to miss it Thank you.